0: Christmas search engine, and I can help you find anything related to... DIY sc- Christmas decorations. Oh, oh okay. Um, let's jump right in. Here we go. <laughs> what date Christmas this year? Uh, December 25th. What date Christmas next year? December 25th. Song that goes I think I know what you're looking for. How cook ham? Okay. How cook ham fast? Uh... Oh, Ham flamethrower recipe. Wait, what? Christmas present mom. Nice. Cheap. Nice. What day, Christmas 2035. Are you serious? Is Santa Claus real? Uh, you should maybe ask your parents about that. Gift wrap bowling ball. Please be careful. Custom dog Christmas. Sorry, what? Christmas dog custom cute. Oh, you mean costume? Christmas dog costume cute. Gift wrap accordion. Uh, that's going to be tricky. <laughs> Can I drink expired eggnog? No. What happens if drank expired eggnog? Why'd you even ask me in the first place? Dealing with relatives. Okay. Dealing with nosy relatives. Uh, well... Dealing with my nosy, overbearing relatives who won't stay out of my business. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty much all the same stuff. A gift wrap, a saddle. Who are you buying this stuff for? Santa Claus riding a unicorn. Santa Claus riding a unicorn socks. Is that a thing? Search it up. Oh, wow, here they are. Take my money. Norwegian tree skirts. How many lights one outlet? Elf pajamas. Dog singing Christmas carols. (sighs) Oh, hello. What is Christmas really about? (sighs) I've got just the thing. of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus? (laughs) Jesus. May I? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <sighs> How fix burnt ham? Okay. Uh, you know what? Forget it. Pizza delivery Christmas Eve. No problem. It's a Christmas Eve. You guys ever go to Google and search like that, just like a couple words at a time? Uh, That kind of rings true for me. Uh, Today we're finishing up our study in the book of Exodus, and we're also finishing up our Advent series uh, together. And uh, to begin, I thought about some Google searches that I've been doing lately, and uh, one of them was how do people prepare for Christmas? And I wonder, how do you prepare for Christmas? Well, uh, the Google search engine has told me uh, that this year, Americans, the average American, uh, put together, we will spend about 66 hours each Preparing for, for Christmas, which is eight full work days just getting ready for December 25th. Now, uh, you might say, well, how does that break down? Some of that time, of course, is spent traveling. Uh, nearly 35% of all Americans will be traveling this month, which is way up from last year's December numbers because of the pandemic. This year, there's 122 million people that are going to be traveling up from last year's uh, uh, statistics. And then, of course, the time is spent with all the preparations that we are making for the eating. How many of you have already started preparing for what you're going to be eating on Christmas Day? You've already started doing some shopping. Okay, there's a couple of us. A couple of us are ahead of the game. Uh, I mean, you know, we've got to buy some eggnog and peanut brittle and sugar cookies and, and, uh, you know, snickerdoodles and prime rib and all that kind of stuff. Uh, The Christmas table, the Christmas meal does take a great deal of preparation. Uh, I think I have a slide for that, if you could go to the next slide. So eating uh, is a big deal on Christmas. We spend 12 hours just preparing the Christmas meal, four hours on the dish, the side dishes, four hours on the main dish, and four hours eating the meal. Uh, which, of course, is the best part. There's a lot of preparation there. Then, of course, there's a preparation for the gift exchanges. Uh, The average number of of gifts that we buy as Americans is 12 gifts, and that uh, costs the average American about $1,000. 25% of us will put that right on the credit card. Uh, We will spend 20 hours finding and buying those gifts, and uh, that includes three and a half hours waiting on lines at stores or shopping online which has been kind of challenging this year with the supply chain issues. Uh, We might spend a lot of time on the porch wondering if our gifts are actually going to come by Christmas this year. Maybe spend some time after Christmas waiting for them to arrive. Hopefully not. But once we find and buy those special gifts, we will spend four hours and 20 minutes wrapping those gifts for our beloved friends and family. And then there's, of course, the time that we spend preparing our home with home decorations The average American spends three hours decorating their home for Christmas, purchasing 26.3 million live Christmas trees, and purchasing 35 million poinsettia plants, which represent one quarter of all of the potted plants that are sold in America every single year. And so you total all that stuff up, and the economists say that Americans will spend about $850 billion dollars Uh, during this Christmas season, which is enough to keep our economy chugging for another year. Why do we spend that much time preparing for Christmas? Why do we do this kind of thing? Maybe it's because we know what is expected of us, or maybe there's a deeper reason. Or maybe there's a spiritual question we should ask ourselves. How do we as a people prepare spiritually for Christmas? Do we spend a comparable amount of time, a proportionate amount of time, preparing spiritually for the Christmas season. Or let me ask it this way How do we prepare for the coming of God into our world? That's the subject found in the final section of the book of Exodus. You can turn with me to chapter 35 if you will. And fortunately, God does not leave his people guessing about the answer to that question. He gives us actually very specific instructions about how to prepare for his coming into this world. Uh, Today, as we finish the study of Exodus, some of you may not have been here, so let me just review or recap. We have said that Exodus is the story of God's people leaving Egypt, the land of slavery. But Exodus is not just about uh, drawing his people out. It's also about drawing his people near. Uh, Exodus is about God bringing them out and then bringing them toward himself. He pulls them out and then pulls them in. Exodus is about God saving a people and then setting apart a people unto himself. He delivers his people, and then he dwells with his people. He redeems them, and then he brings them into his own very presence. So Exodus is this journey. It's a journey from slavery to freedom. It's a journey from darkness into the hands of God. It's a journey from bondage to glory, and that's a journey that all of us must take. Their story is our story. And so today, as we come to the end of that series, we really do come to a climax. We come to the culmination of the story of Exodus. We come to the the moment where the people of God prepare for God's presence to dwell in their midst for the purpose of worship. And you'll see four different parts to this concluding message today. First, we're gonna see God's Sabbath. Then we'll see God's instructions. Then we'll see God's glory. And then we'll see God's grace. God's Sabbath, God's instructions, God's glory. God's grace. Before we look at his word, why don't we pray together? God, we thank you for these three months of study in your word. Uh, It has been so rich and so meaningful. Thank you for liberating us, your people, from slavery. Thank you that you have redeemed us to set us free. Help us to prepare for your advent into this world, to be a people that is prepared for your coming. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the true and greater Israel, the one who was your firstborn son, the son Par excellence. Thank you that though his life was threatened as an infant, he was spared by your providence. Thank you that like Israel, though he went down to Egypt, you brought your son back up. Thank you that though he went into the wilderness to be tested, he failed he, he passed every test that Israel failed. Thank you, Lord for this message on Christmas, the one who would be our true liberator, our true mediator, our greater Moses, who would bring us from death to life and drown the enemy, the devil, in the process. Uh, Prepare us now as we look at your word. Uh, May we see wonderful things in your law. We ask that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Movement one, God's Sabbath. Exodus chapter 35 records these couple of verses as we begin. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. We've seen this specific command to rest before in our series. Uh, It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment. This was the sign of the covenant that God had given to Moses. This commandment is going to be very integral to what it means for them to be the people of God. And the reason is because God linked together his liberation and his exodus uh, from slavery into who they were as a people. And so he commands them to set apart a day for rest and for worship. Now, this seems like probably the easiest command for God to give, right? This has got to be the simplest one. Just take a day off just don't work. Not really. Anybody who's actually ever really tried to obey the Sabbath knows that to obey this commandment takes great faith, it takes a profound sense of intentionality, and I would argue it takes a spiritually a spiritually grounded person to be able to rest from their work. Listen to these words about Sabbath from writer Judith Shulovitz in the New York Times. She said, quote, ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually or easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. And look at what she says next. She says, the rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as social sanction. And so the big picture here is that God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the law, God ties together his commandment about Sabbath to their freedom from slavery. And anybody who habitually overworks is really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from their work is a slave to something. A slave to the need to be successful a slave to a materialistic culture, a slave to to exploitative employers, a slave to parental expectations, or a slave to all of the above. These slave masters will abuse you if you are not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Therefore, the Sabbath is about more than external rest of the physical body. It is instead about an internal rest for your soul. Our God knows that we need rest. He knows we need rest from anxiety and the strain of overwork. God knows this, and he knows that we always attempt as human beings to justify ourselves, to gain the money or the status or the reputation we think we need to have to have any kind of value or have any kind of worth. And so avoiding overwork requires us to have a deep rest in Christ's work on our behalf for our salvation. We learn when we follow God that our being comes before our doing. One of the great blessings of the gospel of Christ is that God gives us rest when no one else will. And so this is the work of the tabernacle. I think the application principle we can gain from Movement 1 is pretty clear. Though they would be working very hard in a few chapters, they first learn that it's only when we rest in God that we can work for God. It's only when we first rest in God that we can work for God. So let me ask you, this is probably the busiest week of the year. What would it look like for you to build in some Sabbath rest during this week on Christmas? I think this commandment is especially relevant right now. You ever listen to the lyrics of some of the Christmas songs that are ringing in our ears all season? Take away some of the festive music and the upbeat tempo, and these words read a little bit more like a panicked to-do list than anything else, don't they? Bring us some figgy pudding. We won't go until we get some. What is this strange tyranny? Haul out the holly. Put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking. I may be rushing things, but deck the halls again. Now! For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Friends, we don't need a little Christmas. We need Christ who can offer us rest. Author A.W. Pink says in his book, Leanings from Exodus, quote, Before we are fitted to work for him, we must first rest in him. Before we can bring to him, we must first receive from him. God loves his people, and he gives to his people Sabbath rest. Movement two. God's instructions. Oftentimes we find God's virtues on a continuum. When it comes to work, on the one extreme, there is a dangerous temptation uh, to pursue workaholism and performanceism and idolatry, and so he gives us his Sabbath. On the other extreme of the continuum of virtue would be the extreme of sloth and laziness and not being obedient to the work that God calls his people to do. And here in Exodus 36 to 40, we see that God's people get to work. They gather together all of the materials that would be needed for the tabernacle, and then the builders and the skilled craftsmen are appointed. Chapter 36, verse 2 says this, Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. Bezalel serves as kind of a foreman, as the project manager of the tabernacle, but there were a lot of other people involved. Exodus 35, 25 speaks of the women involved in the construction of the tabernacle. It was a beautiful community effort. Now, as a warning, Exodus 35 to 40. Uh, does contain some repetition about the tabernacle as it repeats much of the material we covered earlier in the message about chapter 25 through 31. Some of it literally word for word. Exodus 25 to 31 gives us God's instructions for the tabernacle. Exodus 35 to 40 gives us their construction of the tabernacle. Now, it's interesting to me that in between the instructions and the construction... In the narrative of Exodus, there was a major interruption. You remember what it was? God's people fell into idolatry with a little incident involving a certain golden calf. God's people abandoned him, which highlights for us, I think, the placement of the narrative at least two things. Number one, it tells us that they had a need for the tabernacle system in general, and number two, it highlights that God has indeed been merciful, gracious, and has forgiven his people. His plans are still moving forward. Unchanged. This is the mark of the unchangeable character of God's purpose and decree. And so this is their second chance. Though they fell into sin, as Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And so here is their opportunity to go again and obey the Lord. Now, since we already went on a tour of the tabernacle a few weeks ago, I'm not going to repeat all those details again to you. You're welcome. Uh, But what I will do is just give you a brief overview of what happens. First, the tabernacle tabernacle structure itself is built. Next, they they put together the Ark of the Covenant. Then they create the table for the consecrated bread. Then they shape and fashion the lampstand, the menorah, Then they make the altar of incense. Then they make the brazen altar. Then they shape and fashion the bronze basin for washing. And then they create the entire outer court. And finally, they put together and weave together the holy priestly garments. One by one, the project moves toward its completion. I'll just make one brief comment about the garments of the high priest. There were these beautiful adornments and gorgeous colors for the priest to wear that I didn't talk about last time. The high priest would always wear four colors. He would wear blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Blue being a picture of his heavenly origins. Purple being the color of his royal or regal character. Scarlet being the color of the blood of the sacrifice. And white being the color of perfect righteousness. It is not an accident that everything in the garments of the high priest is made up of the same exact material and the same exact colors of the tabernacle itself. It's almost like mysteriously the priest is one with the tabernacle. In a sense, you could say the priest is a man of heaven who walks in the beauty and the glory of God's dwelling himself. The the priest is almost indistinguishable from the tabernacle, which is a picture of things to come. The second observation I would just make about the garments of the priest is that on his heart he would wear a breast piece, and on his shoulders there were these engraved stones that had the names of the 12 children of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel. And so the picture here is that when the priest would come and minister, the priest was not coming in his own name. Rather, it is their names that he's bearing. As he ministers as a priest. In other words, he bears the weight on his shoulders of his people. And he holds his people in his heart as he goes into God's presence to intercede for God's people. He bore their entire burden and brought them with him before God's throne above. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. All of these details are followed with great specificity and precision because God is communicating something very important here about his way of salvation in the future. In fact, there's one phrase that gets repeated over and over and over in this section. It is the phrase, Just as the Lord commanded Moses. We see this phrase show up 10 times, just as the Lord commanded Moses, just as the Lord commanded Moses, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses. And God leaves no room for error here with all of these instructions for their building. He's seen what they can craft and shape and form with their own hands in the golden calf. Here, he's not gonna leave any room for error. He's gonna dot every I, and he's gonna cross every T. Again, author A.W. Pink says, quote, one missing peg, would mean a slack cord. And a slack cord would mean a curtain would be out of place. And the disorder would spread from there. And so God gave them very specific instructions about how to build the tabernacle, and they obeyed. And I think the application for us in this section is pretty obvious. God's people should do what God has told us to do. Exodus proclaims that true freedom is found in willing obedience to the instructions of God. You'll recall that in the beginning of the book, God did not just say, let my people go. That is not even a complete sentence. God said, let my people go that they may serve me. They had been serving Pharaoh, and now they will be serving God Almighty. As Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson put in their excellent new book, Echoes on Exodus, quote, those who serve Pharaoh become beasts and perish. Those who serve the Lord become priests and flourish. Why? Because as God's people, we learn that only in total service to God do we find our true perfect freedom. God did not set Israel free from slavery to Pharaoh so that they could invent their own identities and design their own lifestyles. No, he set them free so that they would become his. One of the most devastating and deeply rooted lies in our culture is that freedom from is enough. We cherish freedom from. Freedom from tradition, freedom from inhibitions, freedom from laws, freedom from limits, freedom from obligations. This is the American way. We want to do what we want, when we want, with who we want. We want freedom from. This is the way of the golden calf. True freedom, biblical freedom, always requires freedom for. We are creatures with a purpose, with a built-in end. The Bible teaches us that true freedom is only found in willing obedience to the instructions of God. Personally, I believe exposing the empty promises of freedom from and exulting in freedom for that we find in serving God is one of the most urgent, crucial, and life-giving tasks facing the church today. I believe that exposing the empty promises of freedom from and exulting in the promises of freedom for In serving God is one of the most urgent, crucial, and life-giving tasks facing the church today. God has set us free for a reason. His law is not burdensome. Psalm 119.32 says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Christian freedom is a constraining freedom. It's constrained by our love for God. We see perfect obedience here in the people of God, which testify to their love for God. Let me try to illustrate and go back to that Christmas preparations thing for just a second. There's a deeper reason why we spend all that time preparing for Christmas. The reason underneath of the reason is because we want to show love to our family and our friends. Have you ever received a, a handcrafted Christmas gift that obviously took a lot of time for someone to put together? I remember a few years back, one of our daughters spent a lot of time embroidering this beautiful picture for her older sister. Uh, She made it from a photograph, a certain moment in her older sister's life where she had got engaged to her her fiancé. So she took the picture, and she took the cloth, and she took the needle, and then she spent hours and hours and hours and hours embroidering this thing so that on Christmas morning when her older sister opened it up, the tears began to flow down. She said, this is the greatest gift that anyone's ever given me. This is such a beautiful work of love. You know what it was for our youngest daughter? It was a labor of love. See, this is what God's people are displaying here for God. This is a labor of love as they build his tabernacle. And the Lord Jesus asks us the same, does he not? John chapter 14 says, recording the words of Jesus, if you love me, Keep my commandments. This is how we display our love for God. And so they fashion and obediently follow God's instructions here for the tabernacle. And then there's this verse in chapter 40, verse 33, which kind of culminates everything. It says, and so Moses finished the work. Scholars have noted that the word finished here is the same exact word used in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all of their vast array. Additionally, there's a word used earlier in Exodus 39:32, saying that Moses saw that they had made it just as the Lord had commanded. That also is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis: 131, where it says, "God saw the work that He made that it was good." In other words, in Genesis, God himself inspects all that he has made, and it was very good. And in Exodus, Moses inspects the work that the people had made and saw that it was very good. So my point is, the language that we see here towards the end of Exodus is the language of new creation. The tabernacle was God's way of finding a way to make all things new. It was God's way of pushing forward his plan for all of the universe. Ultimately, his plan would be that I will be their God and they will be my people. And the tabernacle was just one step forward in making that plan become a reality. And ultimately, it will become a reality as we read John's words in Revelation 21 when it says, Behold, God's dwelling place is among the people and he will dwell with them. And the tabernacle points us forward to that great hope. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is our great hope that one day we have the promise of eternal life for ourselves and for our loved ones who have passed on, who also trust in Christ, that we'll be reunited around his throne and he will make all things new. The tabernacle points us to the future when God's dwelling will be with us. And so Moses finished the work. For you technical people, it is exactly one year after they left Egypt. They went up to Sinai. Moses got the law, the golden calf incident. They spent some time crafting all this furniture for the tabernacle. We are one year later now. After all of this has occurred, the people are ready to worship God. And this is why God saved them and redeemed them in the first place. God's people, you and I, were created to worship him. Everybody worships. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? And is that which you worship worthy of your worship? The the Bible, the Christian story, says that there is only one who is worthy of our worship, and it is Jesus Christ, exalted over all. And so they come to the purpose for which God had redeemed them, worship, which brings us to movement three, God's glory, God's glory. All the preparations are made. Now, just imagine that you are Moses. What are you thinking here? There's a moment after everything is completed, right? Right? Some of you are, you're going to prepare your home this week. You're going to prepare for guests. You're going to clean your whole house. You're going to clean parts of your house that you haven't cleaned in a year. You're going to be like ready for the food. You're going to be totally prepared for their coming. The stuff's going to be in the oven. Your guests should be on their way. You're all set and you're wondering, will your guests really arrive? I wonder what Moses was thinking here. Everything is set. Everything has been prepared. And maybe Moses is wondering is God going to show up? Is is God really going to be with us? Now, this is more than just any invited guest, right? This, This is the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who declared to him at the burning bush, I am who I am. This is the Lord, the Almighty, the Creator, the one who is the embodiment of love himself, the only wise God, the sovereign over all, the the incomprehensible, invincible, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. The Westminster Catechism describes God as the one who is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is God. The one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Would God himself really show up? Will he really be with us? Isn't that the question you and I ask as well? Will God really be with us? Let's read together the conclusion of the book of Exodus. It says in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Wow! What a magnificent end to this magnificent book. Love came down. And did you notice how swiftly love came down? In fact, scholars have noted that in verse 34, the word then in Hebrew is not even there. It's actually just added in English to make it flow. In the original, the word, there's just more of a promptness to the way that this thing reads. I emphasize that because sometimes you and I think about God as reluctant, or sometimes you and I think of God as slow, but what I want you to see here in the text is that God wastes no time whatsoever. No. As soon as this tabernacle is completed, God's like ready to pounce on it. Use your imagination. God is up in heaven watching them complete all of this work, watching them arrange the tabernacle exactly how He had instructed them to arrange it. And then, just as they put everything in place, boom, He's there. He shows up. That's what you call a love bomb right there. No supply chain issues whatsoever. He is right on time. This is big news. Right, this is really big news. Right, when the Allies landed at Normandy for D-Day, that was pretty big news. Okay? When we first put a man on the moon, that was big news. When Jeff Bezos and a bunch of civilians went up in space last July, that was pretty big news. But ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, those events are nothing compared to the news that the God of the universe has come to dwell with his people. And what we learn here is what we have learned in every section of the entire book of Genesis, uh, Exodus, Genesis 2. But we've learned this in every chapter of Exodus, namely that our God is, is eager to be with his people. Our God initiates with his people. Our God is the one who rescues. It's God who saves. It's God who delivers. It's God who provides. It's God who gives water. It's God who gives protection. It's God who gives victory. And right here, God gives them the very best gift of all. His presence. Brothers and sisters, God is eager to fulfill his covenant promises with his people. He's eager to dwell with his people. This is our God. He's ready to work on your behalf. His coming glory at the end of Exodus, at the end of the construction of the tabernacle, is the culmination and the climax of the narrative. Everything, everything, everything has been leading up to this moment right here. And of all the blessings that God has given his people, and there are many, freedom, provision, victory, bread, water, this is by far his greatest gift of all. And what is that? What is the greatest God gift that God gives to his people? The answer is himself. Tim Chester says it so well. In the end and at the end, what we get from God is God. Amen. This is what your soul really longs for, a restored fellowship with God. God. Jonathan Edwards said, the reason you were created was to know and to seek God above all things. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has placed eternity in your heart, and nothing but God who is eternal will fill that vacuum. And that which will bring you the highest happiness, the highest pleasure, and the highest satisfaction is God alone. This is the gospel. The gospel is not that God forgives you so that you could go on to better things. The gospel is that you get God, and when you have God in your life, you don't need the other things anymore. John Piper says God is the gospel. Why? Because God alone satisfies. God alone satisfies. Jesus said it this way in John 17, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom, they have, whom you have sent. In the end and at the end, what we get from God is God. And so here at the end of Exodus, we remember that it started with God's people enslaved and oppressed under the thumb of a pagan Egyptian leader named Pharaoh. God's people were groaning and they were crying out to him. And we finish as God's people have been set free. And God himself is dwelling in the midst of his people. God loves his people, so he gives them his Sabbath. God loves his people, so he gives them his instructions. God loves his people, so he gives them himself. There's only one problem. Did you notice something here? Take a look again at verse 35. But Moses could not go in. This is not good news for me and you. I mean, Moses, he knew God than, better than any man alive. Moses gave up everything he had in Egypt following God's call at the burning bush, performing great signs and wonders with that staff. Then Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and and receives God's very law from himself. Not even Moses can enter. After all of his work, after all of that inspection, after all that checking and double-checking and triple-checking and that perfect obedience, not even Moses can go in. Where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? Where does that leave us? I'll tell you where it leaves us. It leaves us on the outside. Our sin leaves us alienated. Our our sin leaves us estranged. Our sin leaves us behind a barrier and a thousand curtains. Our sin leaves us in the darkness, waiting without hope and without light, pushed to the margins, left outside in our shame. Here is God with his white, hot, glorious Shekinah presence. And here's you and me and Moses and everybody else left outside shivering in the cold. Which leads us to movement four. God's grace. What we have here at the end of the book of Exodus points us forward. It points us forward in the short term to the need for the book of Leviticus. Leviticus which gives God's people very, very specific instructions about how they might approach him. Spoiler alert, it's through sacrifice. And in fact, if you keep reading the book of Leviticus, you will find in Leviticus 9, 22 through 24 that Aaron the high priest actually does offer an acceptable sacrifice to God, and he and Moses are actually able to go into the tabernacle, and that's amazing because God has made a way. But ultimately, that is a temporary system as the entire sacrificial system would be never-ending because sin would be never-ending. And so because of the sins of the people, those sacrifices would have to be repeated and repeated and repeated. Something else had to be done to allow for a permanent solution to this problem. And friends, that is what Christmas is all about. 1,500 years after this, The glory of God would come down and dwell in tabernacle again in a new way, but this time not in a tent made with ram skins. This time the very glory of God would dwell in human skin. This time the glory of God would not fill the tabernacle. This time the glory of God would fill a manger. And this time instead of Moses, it was a young couple engaged to be married who received the news about his coming. And this time the story wasn't about God saving his people from slavery in Egypt because there was a greater slavery that he came to save his people from. Matthew chapter one records the story. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin." Christmas, Jesus Christ is the solution to this age-old dilemma of alienation and separation. Jesus is the solution that Moses needed and that Mary and Joseph needed and that you and I need as well. The solution is God's grace. And Jesus would grow up, minister, live the life that you and I should have lived, and then die the death that we had deserved and save his people from their sins. And on the cross, Jesus would be put on the outside so that you and I could be brought onto the inside. This is the good news of Christmas. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, proclaim thy holy birth. And praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. How silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Which brings me to you. What will be your reaction to this coming? What will be your reaction to the Christmas story? Have you come to the place in your life where you have asked Jesus to save you from your sin and to be the Lord of your life? Or are you still like Moses sitting on the outside? The good news of Christmas says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including Moses. We could all take a rock and try to throw it from here to the World Trade Center. Some of us may throw it farther than others, but we would all fall short. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. The word death in the Bible means separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body, but that word in the Bible refers to a spiritual death, a separation of the soul from God. That's the wages of sin, spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life because Romans 5.8 says, for God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved. And through a great exchange, we can be prepared to meet him again. But to be prepared for Christmas is not to prepare yourself through your own good works. It is to receive the very preparations that God has made on your behalf through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. Are you prepared for Christmas? Have you received that message by faith? I can't think of a better time to do that than on Christmas. Let's pray together as the worship team comes today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings about the greater exodus, who brings about the greater freedom, freedom from our slavery to sin. He is our great mediator, the one who intercedes for us, who is better and greater than Moses. He is the lamb that was slain and the blood of the lamb was shed on the doorposts so that we could escape the wrath of God and be forgiven in you. He is the one who's brought us from death to life and crossed the the Red Sea together with him. He is the one who has revealed to us his law and also given to us a glimpse of his glory, for we beheld his glory, glory of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We declare his name together this Christmas that his name is higher and that his name is stronger and that it is stronger than any grave and any throne and Christ is exalted over all. We worship him this Christmas in Jesus' name, amen.